Hey, my name is Akash Thakar, and this is Sound Business. This is the podcast where we dive into the mindsets and methods of some of the top musicians, sound designers, or audio creators in the world. We're going to interview everyone from plugin makers, performing musicians, video game composers, and everything in between, and learn how they run a successful business and how they're making a killer living in the worlds of music and sound. My hope with this podcast is that you can be exposed to the many myriad different ways there are to make a killer living in the worlds of music and sound, and help you realize that there's no one right way to get to the top. And with that, let's get into the episode. Our guest today is Michael Sweet, who is a video game composer, sound designer, and educator. Michael has worked on well over 100 video games in his career, and he was even my game audio professor at the Berklee College of Music, now teaches game audio at USC, and even created the original Xbox 360 startup sound. He's also one of the people in my life who is absolutely the most responsible for my success in game audio. In this episode, Michael and I talk about his climb into game audio, how he thinks about working in music from a business point of view, dealing with things like rejection and burnout, how doing a little bit of everything musically and sound-wise has helped him and his career, how he approaches networking as an introvert, how he's essentially ushered in a new generation of game audio professionals through his education, and so much more. So without further ado, let's get into the interview with Michael Sweet. So I am very curious what gives you such an educational bent to what you do because you have so much of what you do you've you know you've done music you've done sound design you've done implementation you've done basically all sides of game audio and then some for a very long time but it seems at least from my point of view that it always comes back to education like you've always helped people you came to berkeley you've taught a lot and now you're at usc teaching i'm curious where that kind of drive for education comes in my mom was shocked when I told her that I was going to teach at, uh, I think my first gig was at Parsons. So I was, I was still living in New York. I was doing games and a very close friend was at Parsons and she asked me to teach a sound design class. And so I was like, okay, well, when does it meet Monday nights? And I'm like, okay, well, I'll come down Monday nights and, and teach this class. And I was pretty nervous. And I, I told my mom, my mom was like, what you a teacher? No. Uh, and then maybe six years later, six or seven years later, I had sort of just been teaching that one class on the side after work. And this job came up at Berkeley and that's how I got involved there. A faculty member there had interviewed me for, for her class as a guest lecturer. And because of that, it sort of rolled into this, oh, we, we're opening up this position. Do you want to apply for it? And that's when things really took off in terms of teaching. I was also at a point in my life where I was ready to kind of put composing and doing sound design aside for a little bit. So teaching was a really great way for me to step back a little bit and enjoy music in a different way. So my day job was teaching students, but my my free time was spent creating music for me. And normally I was creating music for other people, other clients and things like that. So it was like a really great change of pace. And now I'm kind of on the other side of that. So I taught at Berkeley for just over a decade full-time and then moved out to Los Angeles. And and now I do it only as a part-time gig where I'm teaching this one class again. 
Um, I really love education. I really love teaching and connecting with students and doing my best to connect people with the games industry. But right now it's, it's a little bit more limited. And, and I still teach, I guess, a, like one additional class for Berkeley online. So it's a combination of the USC and then Berkeley online. And then I'm working on games <laughs> right. in, in most, most days. That's what I'm working on is, is new games are coming out and mostly mobile titles, uh, Android and iOS games and things like that. And a few titles that will end up on steam and, and things like that. Nice. Have you found that because you kind of, you know, balance between teaching and actual client work, have you found that the teaching informs what you do with clients or you've learned various things through your teaching that makes you think, oh, I'm going to try this with this client because I learned about this while I was teaching this class or something like that? One of the best things about teaching is learning from my students, right? So they come in with ideas and they, they were like, do you know this piece of software? I'm like, no, I don't know. You know, and it's, it's really great. I, I think that knowledge travels both ways when you're teaching. So I always invite people to kind of bring things in and bring their personalities to class. Right now, it's really hard to teach in person, primarily because you have to be masked up if you teach in person right now. And so you're shouting <laughs> through this mask for several hours at a time. And the other thing too, is you have to recognize students with this, like just their eyes, right? You yeah. don't see their faces. So it's incredibly challenging right now to connect with one another in terms of really getting students to bring their ideas to class and come out of their shell a little bit. It's almost like they put the mask on and they also put on this armor on their outside. And it, it's hard to dive into that in the same way that it was before. So it's just a changing time, but I do still enjoy it. But I enjoy the client work too. The client work is super fun for me to kind of dive back into that and explore a lot of the ideas, some conceptually from education, thinking about experimentation and things like that, that I can bring to my work now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you mentioned connection with your students. And I'm really curious because you've probably had maybe thousands of students at this point. I'm not sure. But there's probably some things that you see universally across a lot of them that you know how to kind of advise them. Like you probably see a lot of students who come into your class unsure of what they want to do with music. Like and that was me in Berkeley. I had no idea what I wanted to do. So are there things that you say to them to advise them, to help them throughout that kind of artistic process when they're in school thinking, my mom thinks I'm not going to have a career. What do I do? <laughs> I, I do think there's kind of two parts to game audio. There's, there's the creative side, but there's also the business side. You know, you could be the best creative in the world, but if you can't convince someone to actually hire you to, to do a job, then it's like, what are those creative skills? What do you do with them? And so I think it's always important to explore, at least in education, well, what does the business side mean? How do I convince someone to give me a check at the end of the day so that I can trade my skill set for next month's rent and things like that. And it's been a priority for me, at least, to discuss that in classes and to talk about, well, what does a job really look like? And how many clients do you need to support you across a year? You don't need a hundred, you know, you might need two or three if their work is constantly coming in. But I think that when I first started, it was like, oh, I need to know thousands of people. <laughs> you just need to know four really reliable people <laughs> that bring you all kinds of work and to scale it back to a more manageable context in terms of finding work 
and, and things like that. I think one of the most important things I learned from you was about the business side of things. I rem- like during class, you would teach us business things. You would teach us about even the very idea of what taxes are. Like I didn't know when I was <laughs> when I was starting out. Like you would actually teach us that stuff, which was so so useful. I remember. Th- I think this was after I graduated. You sat me down and like talked to me about taxes for an hour. So useful. So 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 handy. So I'm curious from your point of view in the business sense of your work, what have you done, do you feel, to like stand out and be hireable and be someone that people can keep coming back to? I think most people have a skill tree. It's like if they play an RPG, they have a skill tree. And when I was growing up, we played Dungeons and Dragons and we had strength and intelligence and charisma and wisdom. (laughs) And I feel like composers and sound designers have a skill tree too. And in many cases, I help try and bring that out of students and then also try and identify that your skill set is really unique. And I feel like for me, my skill set is is not the same as anybody else's. And because of that skill set, it allows me to get certain types of jobs, but also not get other types of jobs. No one's going to come to me and say, oh, do the next Star Wars Force Unleashed or what? No one's going to say that to me, right? <laughs> but I, I know that it can probably do sound design better than John Williams. So it's kind of this juggling act of who are my people in terms of where I fit in and going out to find my audience and things like that. And I think that um, every student that I've met has similar unique skill sets. And so to help curate that and encourage them to be proud of who they are instead of worried that they are not the next Yoko Shimomura or the next <laughs> Nobuya Uematsu or, or things like that. So trying to really balance that and say that you are valuable because I feel like that's the most difficult part for people is to sort of realize that they can provide value and they end up blocking themselves because they are constantly comparing themselves to people at the top of the industry. And it makes it really difficult to take steps forward. And so a lot of young people are are more paralyzed by either fear or that internal voice saying to them, hey, you're not good enough for comparing themselves to to these professionals. And I think that's the biggest hurdle for most people is to kind of let down that boundary a little bit and, and say, hey, I'm okay, just the way I am. And trying to get better at skills, totally fine. But knowing that you don't have to be somebody else, you can just be who you are and be able to find an audience and find a place in, in the games industry or film industry or wherever they eventually end up. Yeah. And I think that is so valuable because when I was at Berkeley, a common, this wasn't said out loud, but a common thing is to think like, okay, I have no choice but to be yes for kid. I have absolutely no choice but to be, you know, one of these top people, which obviously isn't true. And what I like about you is you do a little bit of everything, music, you do sound design, you do implementation. Do you think when people are breaking into the industry or any really artistic field, do you think it's like a good idea to kind of taste everything? Or do you feel that they should specialize quickly somewhere in between? I think your own interests sort of lead you a a little bit. The more difficult piece is the audience piece, like figuring out who your audience actually is. But I think that your own interest may lie in, oh, I really want to learn more about orchestration, or I really want to learn more about the implementation side and things like that. And I feel like every point across my career has been, even even though maybe I did a job and the job didn't go so well, but I probably learned something and took that 
to my next thing. Or even when I was young and I was really into like science and computer camp and stuff like that, <laughs> right? Like that's why I can do implementation now. It's like, because I, I was into computers as, as a teenager and I can utilize that skill now. And I think that many people find that, you know, whatever that crooked road was to get you to the point that you're at now, all those skills you can use daily, whether it's people skills or it's technical skills or creative skills and things like that. And they shape that chart, that RPG list of all, all the stats that you have. And so I've always felt like every action that I take, there's a result and I can take that in as, as knowledge to, to my next job. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you're right that you do learn from jobs that maybe don't go so well or things that <laughs> like I, maybe the client's fine with it, but you felt like death during it or they're not happy somewhere, somewhere in that land. And I'm curious, how do you bounce back from those situations? Because I've dealt with it and it's like soul crushing when it does come up. Maybe, like, I've been fired off of gigs before. Absolutely. Or maybe the client's just not happy or you're not happy or something like that. How do you come back from those? Because that in the freelancing world can be common. I, I think that... Um... There's no easy answer. It's definitely difficult to pick yourself up after a bad experience on a job. And when you have bad experience on a job, it actually may lead you to your next gig in terms of saying, oh, you know what? I never want to do again. I never <laughs> want to be in that situation ever again. And so you take the road that works for you. And I, I think that for me, my, my mind is always sort of spinning and reliving those moments where I'm like, oh man, I did such a, like, and I think that that person that ends up like sort of talking you out of things it's really hard to get past that and say hey i'm i'm valuable and and i'll be okay it can be really hard when when you get fired off a gig or or the gig doesn't work out or you pass in music right and and they don't like it and you're like oh like <laughs> <laughs> gina zadanowitz who who works at berkeley now who sort of took my position after i left boston she had a really great answer to this question. And she's like, you know, before I go in and get feedback, I, I sort of put on my armor a little bit. And so I take it in more slowly because if it comes in at all, all at once, it can be really overwhelming and it can really, you know, feel like it's soul crushing. Yeah. Right. And, and I really like that answer in terms of like, you have to have some armor to get through some of those bad situations sometimes where either it's a really tough client that you have or you're just, you're missing the direction that they want to go in. And I think that it's important to recognize that your point of view is not always going to be your client's point of view. And so it's not that you're doing a bad job. It's just like you have a different point of view and it's more important to find people that do have your point of view so that you can work with them and it will be a much better connection in the end. Some of the toughest clients I've worked with too also end up being my best clients later on. It's like once you get over that huge hurdle, then it's like, oh yeah, now now we're in like a groove together. But it definitely, it's not easy getting up, but I think that the resilience part of it is important and recognizing that your strengths are your strengths and that's okay. And that you will find an audience. Sometimes you just need to look a little bit harder and it might not be that very first person you meet. Totally. And kind of opposite question to that, when things are going good, I don't know if this is true for you, but I used to have this thing when things were going good, I was like, when's it going to all collapse? When's, <laughs> when's it all going to break down? So when things are going good for you, how do you kind of let that ride and just let it be and leave it alone? Um, for me, it's always about the people that I'm working for. 
And, you know, when it's going really good, I think it's, it's like lighting a match and everything just like gets better, like every day. And, you know, if there's a turning point where the relationships start to break down, then that's the disappointing thing for me. I've been on enough jobs where I know that not every job is going to go great. So I think it's important to find people that really inspire you in terms of your, your clients because you'll work harder for them and people that also respect you in a way that they're not just going to sort of leave you at the first sign of trouble that you build this trust so that they go on and, and trust you for the next job and for the next job. And if things don't go well on the third job, it's like, oh no, we'll figure it out. We'll work it out. We've done this before. And so I think that that trust helps connect people. I've been lucky enough to work with some really fantastic people for more than 20 years. So I think some of those seeds that you plant at the very beginning of your career, those people keep coming back to you over and over because the trust is just there. So building that trust is incredibly important to kind of getting through the bad times because when those bad times come, you, you need to have friends that you can rely on to kind of get through them. And trust also gets you, you know, people will hire who they trust. They don't want to have someone who they feel is shady or weird or anything like that. So how do you build trust in this world of client work? That's a, that's a really great, great question. <laughs> I think by, by not trying to be anybody else, like I think early in my career, I used to try and be the person that I thought someone else wanted to hire. And I realized that I was doing a disservice not only to them, but to me and who I personally was. And because it was almost like I was trying to fake being the person that I thought they wanted to hire, I was being disingenuous in the first place. And no one really wants to hire a person that's just disingenuous. So the, the best thing that I can say to people is be yourself. That's the best way to kind of garner trust is to not try and hide behind something else or or fake who you are, be yourself because that's the best way for them to kind of see your integrity and your vision and your thoughts and your creative direction and things like that. And if you start putting that behind some sort of wall to try and be some other person, then I feel like that's less effective than just being who you are. Yeah, 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 yeah. And there's also, you know, there's cultural fits too. Like some clients just might not like X type of people that they work with and they'll like this type. And it's just that simple, even if the skills are equal across. I, I wish there was one right answer to just be getting the job, but there, yeah, but there isn't, even if you are on paper a perfect fit. So I'm curious then, because you've been all over the country working, you've been in several hubs of game development. Have you noticed that being in these hubs, especially now with the internet, matters a great deal? Because I'm sure a lot of people who you've had study under you ask, where should I move? Should I move to LA? Should I move to Seattle? Should I stay in Boston? Should I go to New York? Anything like that? How much have you found that that matters? I think that because I've been in the industry for a while, let's say pre-COVID, right? <laughs> I've been in the industry pre-COVID um, because everything changed after COVID. Yeah. And I think that most people that were in the industry pre-COVID had the opportunity to meet people face-to-face -face and work with them face-to-face. -face. I've certainly had gigs taken away from me. Like if I had a gig in another city, I was in New York and maybe a game was coming out of San Francisco. 
and I wasn't seeing the client every day that they met someone that was doing sound design. And they kept saying, oh, please hire me, please hire. And eventually they would get hired by this person. And then uh, because I think face-to-face builds incredible connections and it can build incredible connections. Now, no one's meeting face-to-face. So we're all on a level playing field to some extent, but I, I feel like that face-to-face connection can be important. Now, conferences and other things that are like have breakout rooms, you can still have some of those face-to-face relationships. In terms of where to live, again, there's no right answer. It's where you find your people. So if your audience is in Boston or your audience is in New York, New York doesn't do a whole lot of AAA games, but they do a lot of educational games and indie games and kids games, things like that. So New York's really great for those types of games. But if all you want to work on is is Halo and AAA titles coming out of Seattle or, or Asia or, or other places, then you may want to go there to meet the people that are actually working on those games because you'll have a better chance to kind of run into them accidentally. I think that you may have mentioned this in terms of, well, you want to increase the number of chances to kind of meet people by being as many places as you can. You may not get that first gig when you meet with them, but like the third or fourth time, accidentally being in the right place at the right time is going to help you get that gig where it's it's really difficult to define trust and build that trust from meeting them just, just a single time in a breakout room or things like that. So it's kind of like the more people see you, the more trust you bring to that relationship. Look at the games being develops where you want to possibly move to and see whether those games sort of fit your style. I really like doing kids games. I like doing casual games and smaller types of things. I don't think I would fit into a really huge company that was just working on a single title for, you know, four or five years, you know, that doesn't suit my personality, but I think that it may suit, you know, someone that's watching this, then you may want to think about moving to that area that, that does that. I'm sort of at the point in my career where I have enough relationships that doesn't really matter where I live. But I think starting out, it, it's kind of more important to kind of build that roster of, of people that you can start calling. Yeah, yeah. And considering you're at this point now where, you know, you know, people all over the industry, they know you, they've trusted you for a long time. But let's say hypothetically, it all disappeared and you had to restart. What do you think you would do to kind of build that all up? I think the most important thing for young people And if I was young, kind of starting from scratch again, I think it's important to give back to your industry. It sounds like a weird thing. I think that the more that you invest in the industry that you want to go into, the more the industry will give back to you. Some of these things I've done in Boston, for example, we didn't really have a local game audio community. So myself and Eric Hamill with some other people Rachel Chazinski and Renzo were all kind of involved in helping start Game Audio Boston years ago. And that little community was just, you know, it started out as like, you know, a dozen people getting together once or twice a month and grew into this larger thing. But we were all kind of in it together. We were all trying to say, all right, well, how do we get better at this? And we were trying to teach each other things. And so it was kind of like giving back to our industry by helping out one another. And I think that that's a really incredible way to meet new people, to establish that kind of trust. And it may even be on a smaller scale. It might be doing 
podcasts, doing video tutorials, uh, teaching, even if it's teaching maybe younger people in, in high school about game audio and things like that. I think that bringing yourself to the community, investing in the community so that we all can grow is a, a fantastic way to uh, get involved and create those relationships. I know that early on in my career, contributing to those types of groups definitely helped introduce me to people that I wanted to get to know. So, so for me, it was really valuable as part of my own experience. Yeah, yeah, I think that's extremely smart. And it, it kind of counters, like a lot of people think of, I don't think this happens a lot in game audio, but I see it in other fields where they think of, oh, all these other composers are my competition or things like that. And giving back kind of counters that immediately. You stop thinking of other people as like, they're going to steal my gig. I need to make sure I'm, I'm not like helping them too much or anything like that. But what do you have to say about things like that, about competition against other composers or sound designers or anything like that? That was really hard for me when I was young because I felt like I needed that gig more than this person that you know got the gig. I, I remember a gig very early on. It was probably 1997 or something. And I had sort of left a music production company that I was working for and I was out on my own and I really needed this Sony gig. It was me, like unknown person, up against two kind of name composers. And I was like, please let me have that gig. And I, I didn't really understand that. Well, first of all, that in game audio, a lot of people are willing to help each other out, even if there are competitors. I mean, I hear that those kind of stories over and over and over again. I, I And it's happened to me a bunch of times and it's been really great. But at that point in time, it was more, I really needed the gig and I, I couldn't get that. Um, so it was, it was just frustrating for me, at least and in terms of trying to manage that. But later I found that you know, at least in the games industry, everyone's super nice to one another and they like helping each other out. Even if you are a competitor, they're, they're sort of willing to help teach you and sort of bring you into the industry. I don't think that's true necessarily for the film industry in the same way, where it is a little bit more competitive and, and people aren't as nice when it comes to that kind of thing. It's <laughs> I'm, I'm then considering, you know, you view people not as like competitions, they're just peers, right? They're just friends that you're that you're working with. Sometimes they go on to hire you too. It's you never know totally. how these sorts of things pan out. And if you're a dick to somebody, it's not gonna work out for you long term. So it's one of those industries that can have a long memory. And if you're friendly or generally pleasant, it can work well. I also think that I understand that I'm not everybody's cup of tea, right? <laughs> And there are some people that are incredibly charismatic. You meet them and you go like, oh my gosh, I wish I was charismatic like this. You meet them and you want to work with them, right? Totally. Uh, I, I met Hans Zimmer once. My wife works with lots of famous actors and you meet with them and you like, they're so charismatic that you want to work with them right away. I know that I will never have that kind of charismatic weight. Fine. I'm not your cup of tea. That's cool. There's still plenty of work out there for me and I think that that's also important to understand that, you know, for, for young people that are kind of coming up or new people to our industry, that you may not have that charisma in the same way, but there's still a place in gaming for you, depending on what kind of games you want to do and things like that. But I always, I always find that figuring out that not everyone was going to like me was like, it was a good moment to say, oh yeah, no, okay. And I'm okay with that. I think that's the most important thing. It's like, all right, I'm not your cup of tea. Cool. That's fine. 
and be able to walk away from that. And that's better than kind of going back and just brooding about not getting the gig. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, it's like, it's knowing that you didn't roll a charisma build. So it's okay. It's, <laughs> right, it's, it's right, fine. <laughs> right. Because you have these other skills that like right. you can manage and, and things like that. So yeah, absolutely. Right. Totally. Whereas I went zero strength, zero deck, zero int, all ka, and it's just <laughs> <laughs> it's just all I'm trying to do out here. But considering, you know, we all have different strengths, but like no matter how good we are at doing whatever the thing is we do, we still have to deal with things like revisions. We still have to deal with things like getting things wrong. Like you mentioned the things like feedback. And, and if I remember right, you showed us in class a long, long time ago, like your Xbox 360 logo sound. And if I remember right, I'm probably exaggerating it. There's like 800 revisions or something crazy. <laughs> he went through. I don't think that was the there actual was a lot. number. There was a lot. So when you're working with clients and you're just constantly revising, 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 when does it get to the point where you say, I can't do this anymore? Or do you always say yes to the client? Like, where is that kind of line? I think it depends on the job. First of all, I'm going to start out by saying that if you don't feel like you've made a little progress on every call, when that stops, when that sort of plateaus out and, and you're, you've stopped making progress, then there's something wrong in terms of either the communication or maybe you're not right fit for the job or whatever it is where you sort of plateau out and you can't actually get to the next level. It can be hard to know when that time actually is. But on, on that specific job, it always felt like we were kind of leveling up every time. And by the time we got to the end of the job, we all felt good. Because the other thing, I mean, specifically with logos, which are really can be designed by committee, your immediate manager has to talk to his immediate manager like and convince them all the way up the chain to say, oh, yeah, we all like it. And so if the person right above you or the person right above that can't convince the next person up that this is the right thing, then you're destined to kind of fail. So I think it requires a really great team. It requires kind of everybody in the chain to be on board and to keep moving forward and things like that. And on that gig, we were definitely always moving forward, but we did, I, I don't know, 160 revisions or something. So it was a lot, but it was incremental. It was like, oh, a little bit better, a little bit better, a little bit better. And so we never felt discouraged uh, on that. I think that, yeah, doing revisions, it's it's either their fault or your fault, right? <laughs> like maybe my music wasn't good enough. Okay. But maybe what ended up happening was they revised the cut. 16 times, mm -hmm. then it's a little bit like, all right, well, I have to talk to the client. You revise this cut 60. I've re-edited a bunch of times to get my music to work in this. And I think that's not appropriate. I think that you have to have a heart to heart with them and say, look, this has gone beyond the scope of my budget that you promised me. Let's figure something out so that as we move forward, we both don't feel you know, or I don't feel miserable <laughs> moving forward <laughs> on this job and I'm not being appropriately compensated for work that you're asking me to do. I think it's always about appropriate compensation. And if you aren't being appropriately compensated and they come back with all kinds of revisions, you feel like, oh, uh, here's a great example. A friend of mine asked me to do a logo for his company. And I was like, okay, you know, and, and it was kind of a favor. It's a small game company and I like them a lot. And so I think that when I went into it, I was like, okay, well, uh, you know, 
we'll figure this out. But it ended up being this process where it's like, I thought I was just going to give you a bunch of stuff and you'd pick one of the six versions I gave you, but I did six versions and then I did six more versions and then I did six more versions. And then it would turn into, oh, you know what? I'm not, I'm not right for this job. We should just oh, okay. call it and say, all right. Sometimes that happens and, and, and that's fine. You, you just have to kind of roll with things as best you can. And logos, everyone is so intent on this one little five second piece of music that it gets overwrought a lot of times and all the life gets pulled out of it and the creativity can get pulled out of it. Where if you're doing 20 minutes of music for a game, you might get five minutes right away and then maybe like there's a three minutes that's just really tough to get. Okay, well, at least I got most of it and then you can get to the finish line. But if at every turn it's like, no, this isn't right, clearly there's some either communication issue or maybe it's not right creatively for you and the, and the team. I think on that particular thing, my vision and their vision didn't line up for what they they really wanted. And And that's ultimately when it comes down to the paycheck that pays next month's rent. It comes down to sharing a vision or being able to kind of mold yourself into the vision of your client so that you get hired for the next gig after that and the one after that and things like that. And then it gets a little bit easier, but you have to kind of get inside of their creative mindset and deliver on that creative mindset so they feel really comfortable. And do you find within this, there are any red flags you think people should be avoiding, like typical behaviors or things that you should just say no to or draw a line in the sand from other than just not compensating you? I think that that's really individual. I'll tell you about some of mine. Sure. I think that if I work with musicians, I tend to have a tougher time in the detail work. If, if a person comes back and says, oh, can you move the hi-hat, the third hi-hat of the second measure a little bit you know, to the, to the fourth, fourth beat. I'll just be like, that's really not for me. And, and I find that working with musicians can be tougher because they kind of hear what they want in their head and they're mm -hmm. maybe less open to a specific new idea that's, that can be more an interesting collaborative relationship that gets you to someplace new instead of trying to match identically what they, what they have in their head. So uh, personally, I've found that working with musicians can be tougher, even though they know the language. And it's because they know the language that can be sometimes difficult to come up with new ideas because they're hearing it in their head. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, especially if they have the training to have a very acute ear so they can hear that third hi-hat and want it moved. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. That's a real example, by the way. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not making that one up. That that actually happened to me. So That's incredible. Now, as we're getting closer and closer to the end, I'm going to give you a little bit of a thinker. Is, is there something that you think about all the time, career-wise or life-wise or anything like that, that you never really talk about, that you never really express? It could be something you've always been wanting to teach or just show or anything like that. Um, one of the, my side projects that I've been working on for a while is, is related a little bit to that. And it's related to family and connections and things that are important to me. My parents both turned 80 this year. They're both, you know, thankfully alive and relatively healthy. But connecting with, with family and friends is incredibly important to me. So on the side, I've been building this, this app that helps connect people better than the social media as we sort of know it, right? Which 
I, I think Facebook and Instagram and, and other types of social medias tend to drive people apart a little bit because when I, when I see people's feed, I'm like, like, I'm super happy that you're super successful, but I also turn that inside a little bit too. And I'm like, oh, I'm not as good as they are. Or like, I'm feeling bad about myself. Can we do this in a better way? Can we have social media that's supportive of one another as opposed to pushing us farther apart? And so that's, that's one of the apps that I've been working on. And I'm getting close to kind of like a soft alpha launch to it. Um, it's working on Android and iOS right now. I'm, I'm excited about it, but it's much more family driven. And sometime early next year, I'm hoping to actually release it out into the wild a little bit. But those things are the things that matter. It's like family is, is incredibly important. The, your friends and your community and the people that hold you up every day. There's not enough encouragement from the tech world to help help those things. I feel like we could use tech for good in these really kind of interesting ways and, and haven't been able to do that quite as effectively as, as the current social media that we look around and, and see around us. What was the impetus for making this? Was it just thinking like, man, I'm really not feeling good after scrolling for 10 minutes on Instagram. I got to do something. Yeah. Doom scrolling definitely <laughs> was an imp impetus, but also something that ends up being really important to me. And this is kind of the crux of the app is I realized that my parents' voices were part of their identity. And so the app is based around storytelling and voice recording because I want to save those I want to, I want to have those stories around for me. And, and so with my parents getting older and things like that, I want to be able to do that and, and have that and, and share it with other people and share it with my family and friends and things like that. So being able to connect us through storytelling is kind of the center of the app. And it's through voice storytelling. It's not through video. It's because I feel like that voice is like a fingerprint of who you are. And is there a way that we can capture that in a more interesting way than, say, voicemail or something like that? So. That's, oh, man, I'm really intrigued by this. I want to hear all about this as time goes on. That's really, really cool. That's amazing. So as we kind of wrap up, there's a question I ask everybody on this is when you first started and first started could mean anything. It could mean when you picked up the guitar for the first time. It could mean when you went to school, it could be anything. But when you first started in music or audio in general, what was your definition of success and how has that changed over time? And what is that definition now? Uh, that's a really great question. I should have listened to more responses <laughs> from your other podcast. I think it's it's constantly evolving. It's never the same thing. I think that when I was young, I wanted to be a guitar player, uh, a session guitar player. And then I went to Berkeley and realized that I was a terrible guitar player <laughs> compared to other people. And that was, that was okay. But I think that as I kind of learn new things, I think it's all about this evolution of where you set your next goals and finding happiness in setting those goals and then either, you know, sometimes accomplishing them, but enjoying the road that you go down. The road's much more important than those little goals that you set up for yourself. And I think that when I was young, I kept setting these goals and then I realized, oh, wait, if I slow down and enjoy the road a little bit that that's, that's where the real kind of love and passion comes out and things like that. So musically, you know, it could be like a piece of software or technology. It could be like a beautiful piece of music that 
just like totally floored me. It was like that one moment that really spoke to me, right? And that that actually happens a lot. It's like I just heard this song that totally just you know melted me, right? I think that music has the ability to do that, and and for all the way along, it's kind of music has kind of been the thing that has has saved me. When you when you go to church, right? Church is like what you know what saves you, right? Well, music is the thing that saves me. It's the thing that can kind of hold me together, and those are the things that really matter to me. And when I hear music, it empowers me in a way that is kind of indescribable. Oh, that's a beautiful answer. It's an incredible way to wrap this up. So as a last question, where can people find you? Resources, tell them about your book. If you want to mention the app, you can. Anything, plug anything you want. Let's see. You can reach me at yeah michaelsweet.1 at gmail. You also can locate me through Berkeley or just community boards, game audio denizens and, and things like that. So yes, I've written a book. It's a little bit older now because it's been out five or six years now. And you're welcome to buy it if it helps you. It's about interactive music. There are many, I don't like to necessarily plug myself because there's lots of great <laughs> books by John Chance Thomas and Winifred Phillips and Aaron Marks and lots of other people. I, uh, yeah, no, feel free to reach out, whether it's about education or whether it's about writing or composing or implementation or any of those things. I'm happy to speak to you and, and talk with you. My website's always kind of like, I'm like, I don't have time to work on my website. No. I got all this other work coming in. So my website is a bad place to reach me, but this app will come out at some point and I'll share more of that once it does early next year. Beautiful. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on. It was lovely. Thank you so much. I really have in, admired watching you grow oh, since when I you, first man. met you, you know, in the late 2000, like 2009, I guess. 2009, uh, Today, yeah. it's like been amazing to watch your journey and all the amazing, incredible things that you've done. So uh, it's totally an honor for me. Thank you. Oh, you sweet pumpkin. Thank you. <laughs> That's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening as always. And considering I work in the world of video game, music, and sound, and so many people are always asking me how they break into that field, I have a newsletter set up for you. So if you wanna learn how to make music and sound effects for video games and actually be paid to do it, just go to bit.ly forward slash soundbizpod. Sound, B-I-Z, pod. And that newsletter will set you up with two free courses and a bunch of free ebooks and even sound effects that'll get you set up and teach you how to work in the world of video game music and sound. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time. And if you're looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to, this podcast is actually a part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. So if you want to check those out, hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org. 